Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that what is preached would not be an exercise in eloquent wisdom, in performance. Pray that no one would leave here being impressed, uh, being wowed. Pray, Father, that this would be something much more ordinary and yet much more wonderful. That the gospel would be clear and that the power of your spirit would work to use that gospel to awaken the dead to life and to strengthen and encourage and help those who belong to you to hold them tight to you until we see you face to face. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please take a seat, and I want to start by talking to our kids. Kids, who here has planted a garden? or even planted a plant in a pot. How did it go? Did your plant survive? Did it do well? Can you tell me what I would need to turn a seed into a plant? Water? Dirt? Sunlight? So if I plant a seed into the dirt, and I put that in the sun, and I pour some water on it, is a plant going to pop out like a jack-in-the-box? No. Okay, so there's one more thing that I need if I want to make a plant grow, and that is patience, right? When you grow a garden, you need patience. But waiting can be very, very boring. I don't know if you've ever had to wait for something and been bored. And that's really true of gardens, isn't it? Because for a long time, it looks like nothing is happening. So if I'm not patient, maybe I'm going to ask, what can I do to make my plant get out of the ground faster? And the best thing that I could probably do is think about what makes me grow, right? What makes me grow? What are things that help me grow? God? Yeah. You know what makes me grow? Pizza. (laughs) So, what if I just take that plant and I give it some pizza? That makes me grow. That should make my plant grow, right? Is that a good idea? No. Okay. You're right. Pizza's not very healthy. So I need healthy food. Healthy food will help my plant grow. You know know what's healthy? A good hot bowl of soup. So maybe if I just pour hot soup on my plant, then it'll grow really fast. Is that a good idea? No, okay, still not a good idea. God's plan for creation is a lot better than mine, isn't it? God knows what makes plants grow. God knows they need water, they need sun. And my job then is that I can't replace God. I just have to wait. I have to wait for those plants and God is gonna decide that they are gonna grow when it's his time. Now listen to Jesus' parable here, Mark chapter four. Go to Mark chapter four, verse 26. And let's hear what Jesus says because he's gonna talk about what makes seeds grow. Mark chapter four, verse 26. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seeds on the ground. He sleeps and he rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how the earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain of the ear. But when the grain is ripe, he, what, 
at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Now, kids, Jesus tells us that the kingdom of God is like a seed you plant. Do you get that? Does that make sense right away? Just like God has made sunlight and water and things that make plants grow, God has decided what's going to make his kingdom grow. Do you know what makes God's kingdom grow? What is like, plant, like water and sunlight that makes God's kingdom grow? What is it? People. What makes God's kingdom grow? Jesus. The good news, doesn't it? The gospel makes God's kingdom grow. Now, just like I cannot make a plant grow, I cannot make somebody a part of God's kingdom. I can't make it happen. I can't force them to be. I can't force you to believe in Jesus. But God does that through Jesus. When people believe that Jesus took the punishment for their sins, that he rose again, that is something that we can trust that God is going to use to make his kingdom grow in people's hearts like plants growing with sunlight and water. And kids, God gave you wonderful gifts to grow his kingdom in your heart. He gave you the Bible. He gave you praying. He gave you church, your moms and dads, as gifts to make that seed grow. Now, sometimes we might not like the way that God grows his kingdom. We might think that that's boring. We might think that we have better ways to make God's kingdom grow in our heart, like watching TV. That would be a better way for God to grow his kingdom in our hearts, is if I could watch TV, and that would help me to grow in, in love God more. Or eating pizza. That's better than reading our Bibles and praying. And we might complain, we don't enjoy praying. I don't enjoy reading my Bible. This isn't fun. Doesn't God have a better way to make me love him with more pizza and television and fun things like that? More Minecraft. But that's us thinking, you know what? My idea for how God could grow a love for him in my heart, my ideas for how God could grow his kingdom, they're better than God's. I'd be a lot smarter than God. I'd only do fun things, not like God does. So even when our hearts might want something else, it's good to remember that God has a better plan for making plants grow than we do. And God's got a better plan for helping us to love and trust in him than even we do. And our job is to be patient and wait and want our moms and dads to do the stuff that God has told them to do. Even when our heart says, can I have more television? Can I have more candy? That would make me a happy Christian. Trust that our moms and dads are going to give us the stuff that God knows is going to grow his kingdom in our hearts. And his way is going to grow a big, beautiful garden in our hearts and our church and around the world. Now, this comes in the middle of the section of parables that Jesus has been teaching. He's sitting on a boat. He's talking about uh, many things, Mark says. But we're starting to see some themes in what Jesus is talking about. He's talking a lot about salvation. He's talking a lot about how God works salvation in hearts. And in the big picture, how the salvation of people grows God's kingdom. Mark has been taking this whole book so far to give us this really clear evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. Very clear that this is the anointed king 
from the line of David sent to save God's people. But we've also been learning that Jesus was not the Messiah that everybody was looking for. There were people who were already starting to get pretty upset at the idea that this was what the king would look like. Likewise, Jesus is showing us now that a lot of them were expecting the kingdom of the Messiah to look a lot different than the one Jesus was bringing in. And that's going to be the particular focus in this parable and the next one. Now, you might forgive a first century Jew for saying, I know how kingdoms happen. There's one guy, and he's got an army, and he goes out, and there's this other guy, and he's got an army, and they come together, and the two armies fight, and whoever wins gets to be king. And now that that guy's a king, he's got a bigger army, and he goes out and he finds another king in his army, and they fight, and whoever wins that battle gets to be an even greater king. That's how kingdoms work. That's even kind of how some kingdoms worked in the Old Testament, right? David and Solomon grew their kingdoms through conquests. That Is that going to be the way that God's kingdom comes about? Is Jesus going to do something similar? Is he going to take on Rome with a sword and make Jerusalem his imperial capital? Now today, we don't talk so much about the growth of kingdoms. We don't have as many kings as we used to. The kings we have aren't really in charge in the way that they used to be. Now we do still talk a lot about things like movements and eras and cultural waves, and those are the powerful things that seem to take over the world. Those tell us who gets elevated and who gets suppressed. We might talk about things like the LGBT movement or Marxism or Islam, and we talk about these ideas as movements that we compare with Christianity. We contrast them with the gospel and the kingdom of God. So we might have very different expectations than a first century Jewish person about how God's kingdom should come. But what we would share is this anxiety as we're looking out at all the forces of the world and we're wondering, what's God going to do? What do I need to do? I need to get going. We need God's kingdom to get going. Or do we just surrender? What does God need us to do? And that's the question Jesus is answering in this parable. We have a sower, and the sower is going out, and he's spreading seed. And at the end, this big harvest comes in. But what's probably most important is what happens in between that, which is, from the farmer's perspective, very little. He rests. He goes to bed. He gets up the next morning. Maybe he builds a gazebo. He lets the plants grow. He's patiently waiting. The farmer can't make the crops grow. He just knows that they will. God is taking care of it. Not in some sort of mystical, supernatural, magical way. God has knit wisdom into his creation that grows seeds into plants. Jesus is following the pattern of scripture, which always points us to God's sovereignty over creation to remind us of God's sovereignty over his kingdom. Whenever you look out in this world, whenever you praise God for the amazing beauty and power that we see out there, when he makes everything run from the smallest spirit or the biggest tree to the seasons, you remember that God is just as sovereign, just as committed to his plan for his kingdom. We saw that in the psalm that Carl read. This runs all through the scriptures. But there the psalmist says, don't trust in princes. They're a part of creation. They come and go as a part of what God has made. But blessed is the one who trusts the Lord. Why? 
because he's in control of all creation. He made heaven and earth. And just as he keeps faith with his creation, he is steadfast in how creation works. He keeps faith and is steadfast in how his kingdom works. He is committed to his salvation. He is committed to his people. And you can remember that every time you see just how committed he is to the cycles and the seasons that unfold every year. Do you want to trust in that power and ability, or do you want to try and take over and put your trust in princes or even in yourself? Would you rather place your hope in what you can accomplish, you who are a part of creation, who are subject to creation? This is a surefire path to crippling anxiety. And ultimately, it is a path to despair and death. Or, look out your window in the morning and make that your first opportunity to remember that the God who is overseeing creation is the one who you can rest in to control history, to grow his kingdom. Look at his power to shepherd the birds and the animals and the trees. And he will shepherd all of history for the sake of his purposes. Now let's apply this lesson through this parable where Jesus talks about three aspects of farming. Sowing, waiting, and harvesting. First, what does it mean to sow seeds according to God's wisdom? Now just like the earlier parable of the sower, sowing seeds here is talking about the spread of the gospel. The gospel being planted in the world, even in people's hearts. When a farmer trusts that God is going to grow his crops, the farmer still knows that he's got something to do. This isn't a call to laziness. It's not that the farmer is planting so he can take credit for making the seeds grow. Our work is a testament to us trusting God's wisdom. I believe in the created order that God has established to turn seeds into plants, and so I will grow, go out and I will plant my seeds because I trust God. It's the same with his kingdom. When we trust in God's growth of God's kingdom, we see he gives us lovely, steady, faithful work to do. Restful work. Jesus' parable here is alluding to Ecclesiastes 11.6, which says, In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Ecclesiastes is also using planting as a metaphor for serving God's kingdom, but here the emphasis is on diligence. Not anxious, weary toil, faithful, patient, diligent service of God. The author of Ecclesiastes reminds us, God has not promised that every plant will grow. He hasn't. He hasn't promised that every single righteous proclamation of the gospel will produce certain fruit. But that doesn't change the fact that this is the way that God has promised seeds grow. This is the way that God has promised his harvest will be brought about. Crops will be produced this way. So even though we don't know where and when the harvest will come, we cannot predict which person will believe. We cannot say that every individual will surely be saved. We can say that if we are diligent in this work, God assures us that this is the way that the kingdom harvest comes in. 
This is the way that he has planned for gospel seeds to bear wonderful fruit. So you can go out diligently, hopefully, expectantly, knowing that God is surely bringing in the crop. It will be effective because God is sovereign over his kingdom. Now, in God's sovereign rule over his kingdom, he has decided that his kingdom grows through you and me sharing the gospel with people. That is the way it will happen. As Paul says, he puts his treasure in jars of clay, and that's one of the ways he shows how amazing he is. That through you and I sharing the gospel with people, God's kingdom surely grows. Weak, sinful, repentant people. Yes, God has appointed officers to do this in his church, but he's also appointed moms and dads in families. He has given all of us a task to go out into the world as messengers, to build up the church through prayer, through scripture reading, discipling one another. None of this is us taking charge of God's kingdom, just like the farmer knows that he's not willing seeds to grow. It is us faithfully following the commands of our king, trusting in him. We are not changing hearts. That is not your job. We are not awakening dead hearts to life. We are not forcing God's spirit into people to conform them to the image of God. That is not our job. That is the mysterious, beautiful work that we trust that God does. We are given tasks as acts of faith because God has promised that he will make use of those things to do his miraculous work, just as the farmer puts the seed in the ground, trusting that God is going to do something miraculous with those seeds. So we take these things that God has given us to do, this diligent work, reading the scriptures, proclaiming the gospel, prayer, the gifts of the church, preaching, the sacraments, singing together, and we call those the ordinary means of grace. By ordinary, we mean that they're not special. They're not magic tricks. They're not, they're not out of the ordinary. They are everyday, unconventional actions which God gives us to knit into the wisdom of our lives. By means of grace, we say that God takes these ordinary things and he uses them to accomplish wonderful, beautiful, miraculous work by his power. God will never change the way that seeds become plants. You never have to wake up tomorrow and, and, and like figure out that God has changed the wisdom of farming. Neither does God ever need you to have a crisis and consider whether we need to change the way that he's going to grow his kingdom. That we need to start dreaming up some new special change to get this job done. It will always be the proclamation of the gospel the reading of his word, prayer, his church. That is how God grows his people. And God has not promised everyone will be saved who experiences these things, but he has promised, this is the way my harvest will surely come in. Likewise, if you depart from these ordinary means of grace, if they get too boring, you're struggling to be patient in them, you will certainly become an unconventional farmer but you will also become a fruitless farmer. Maybe after a farmer experiences a bad crop, he has a crisis. It's not bearing the fruit he wants it to. Maybe I got to try something different. Maybe I've got to shake this up. Maybe if I try not using seeds, 
Maybe if, I, maybe if I totally deprive them of water, in fact, I'm going to put heat lamps over my fields and I'm going to dry my seeds out. It's not going to work any better, is it? Or maybe the farmer's not so strange as that and he just thinks, I've got to add some things. We're going to plant, we're going to water, we're going to trust sunlight, and then we're going to give our plants pizza. And then we're going to pour soup on them. Now, if any of those seeds grow into plants, it will be despite the strange additions of the farmer. The reason that any of those seeds might still make it through the dirt is that God was faithful in the normal things, even as the farmer did his best to hinder them through the weird stuff that he had brought in. The same is true of God's kingdom. You might be losing confidence in the means of grace. They're not just boring and laborious and difficult when you try and follow them like disciplines every day, but they don't seem to be bearing the fruit that you want to see. Your kids don't love the gospel like you were hoping they would. In fact, they seem pretty frustrated when you want to talk about the Lord. Our church isn't growing the way that we wanted it to, not like some of these other churches that are growing so quickly. Our city still seems to be running away from God rather than running to him doesn't seem to be working very well. And our temptation then is to look out at the kingdoms in the world and say, well, can we just bring in a little bit of what seems to be working out there? Now, of course, in ages past, this meant looking at Babylon and Rome and saying, well, what's been working for them? And then you get things like the Holy Roman Empire. You get the Crusades. You get the conquistadors coming, bringing the kingdom about the way that they saw other kingdoms coming about. Now, much has been written on those ages in history, but one thing is absolutely true. No heart has ever been transformed by a sword. You cannot make someone a citizen of God's kingdom by telling them they are a citizen of a Christian country now. Now today, there are not many Christians going out conquering nations with swords for the gospel. But we are still tempted to look out at the world and ask if we can adopt any of what's working out there to make God's kingdom grow. This movement in the church is usually called pragmatism. And pragmatism simply means doing what works. Looking at the end results that you can produce and saying that's going to justify the means. I'm going to go out and find out what produces the best results and I'm going to do that. Whatever grows the church the fastest, that ought to be what we're doing. Whatever would make my kids happiest, that should be what I'm bringing in to their Christian lives. I should look out at other successful movements and organizations and imitate them. Okay, so what's successful right now? The Minions movies? Taylor Swift? Expensive coffee? TikTok? How do we harness some of that energy? So churches, they actually sit down and they say this, right? How do we harvest some of that energy to make God's kingdom grow? How do we hook our wagon to those horses? Okay, maybe we need to be more entertaining. Maybe we need Christian celebrities. Maybe we need to cultivate the, the coffee shop culture better. Maybe we need a bigger band. Now, as long as this, none of this clearly contradicts Scripture, if God hasn't said it's a sin, let's just throw it all at the wall and see what sticks. Now, this line of thinking has led the church to some of the strangest, most outlandish places you can ever imagine. 
Churches putting on expensive plays where Disney characters are crucified on crosses and come back to life. Churches creating online-only experiences where you can live out your entire church life in your pajamas, not speaking to anyone. Churches selling branded merchandise This is where our wisdom takes us. When we are this anxious about whether or not we can grow God's kingdom, we can wind up in insanity, putting pizza on geraniums. Do not give up your confidence in the good, regular, beautiful, ordinary Christian labor which God has given you to do. It is his sovereign wisdom to decide where and when the harvest comes. He has not promised every individual will certainly be saved, but he has promised the harvest is coming. And this is the way that it will grow. In morning and evening, as Ecclesiastes says, with your youngest children, with your oldest grandparents, in season and out of season, don't feel a burden to change the playbook. Whether you get to see the abundance brought in yourself or in your own lifetime, it feels like it's always been difficult farming. God's plan is that you would diligently, faithfully serve him and then rest in that. And this brings us to the heart of the parable. The farmer does not plant his seeds and see them grow overnight. It is slow, almost unnoticeable. But it is God's power in that growth. And the farmer gets to rest. Point two is resting in God's sovereignty. The farmer plants according to God's wisdom, his creation wisdom. He cannot apply new and conventional means. He prays for sunshine. He prays for rain. He trusts the power of God and he waits. He leaves the plants in God's hands and he goes to bed. When we serve God's kingdom by applying his means of grace, we know our own power and ability is not going to do anything to make that kingdom grow any more than we can force seeds to become wheat. You cannot make your children Christians. You cannot force a family member to trust in Jesus. But when you apply God's design for his kingdom, you are leaving those things in his hands. You are trusting that that is what God can do. You are calling upon him to do what he says he can do. And then you are invited to rest. This choice to rest our confidence in God rather than ourselves, that begins in the gospel itself. That very seed out of which this kingdom grows assures us that we had no power. We had no ability. We had no inclination to be saved, to become a part of God's kingdom. We were dead dead in our sins and transgressions. We were children of wrath. That is when God, who is rich in mercy, saved us. Jesus did not die for seekers who were looking for him. He did not die for people who just needed the right attraction or the right event to become drawn to him. Jesus died for enemies who were waging war against him. That is the power of the gospel worked according to God's grace. And it is by God's grace and power that the gospel continues to work as we are saved. 
Paul says that God certainly does not save us by the Spirit and then suddenly put our flesh in the driver's seat and let us decide how we're going to grow. He who begins a good work in you is the one who surely brings it to completion. Every part of your salvation is a work of God because every part of your salvation is to the glory of God. Even this striving against sin, this striving for obedience, which God does call us to, that is not worked by our own power. That is from God. We strive with the energy he works in us, the apostle says. So even in our action, at every moment from justification to glorification, you are invited to rest. You are invited to trust the wisdom and power of God because he is just as surely committed to his kingdom right now as he always has been. That same faith in the gospel, that same growth and sanctification, that building up the church, that's what he's been doing for centuries, isn't it? And that is the same work that he can do in you and in us today and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. If we depart from that, if we even add to it, we are taking some of that responsibility off of God's shoulders and we're saying, I'll take that. I will take that responsibility myself. Now, we got to ask some tough questions. Why isn't our church as big as that other church? Oh, maybe not. We're not doing a good enough job, are we? We're not growing quick enough. Maybe we need a more charismatic pastor. It's probably true. Maybe we need more relevant music. Do we need to connect better with cultural issues? Do we have to take a poll as to whether or not the people here are bored? Some of you look bored. <laughs> On the one hand, this might allow us for a few minutes to feel really proud if we go through a season where things are going well. But whether or not things are going well or poorly, what this attitude will always invite us to do is feel anxious about whether or not we are getting the right stuff done and doing it properly in such a way to accomplish the results that we set out to accomplish. In the same way that any business leader is going to be disappointed if their strategy for growth fails. The same is true in our home. If you give up God's regular pattern of discipleship for families, reading scripture together, praying with your kids, teaching them what God has commanded, now you are left wondering whether or not you've made Christianity look good enough for them. Whether or not it's attractive enough for them to choose it and become Christians. Do they seem to be enjoying themselves enough at church? Are you having fun? That's the first question we ask when we bring them home from church, when we bring them home from gatherings. Did you have enough fun? Was it good enough for you? We put them in the driver's seat that way because we have a lack of confidence in the gospel. And parents, we know that leads to anxiety, doesn't it? And exhaustion. And what is more, there is no way that you are going to be able to change the way that God's kingdom grows without tinkering with the gospel itself. If this gospel is all about God's power of our salvation, then our efforts to try and improve upon that, to get done the things that we need to do to make people Christians, that's going to get right to the heart of the gospel. It's going to get right to the heart of how people get saved and what holds on to them. Changing our methods is going to change the gospel we're teaching. And if we're changing the gospel we're teaching, we're changing the seeds we're planting, 
then we're changing the harvest we're growing. We are changing the kingdom that we are serving. Parents, if you have felt this anxiety about the salvation of your children, maybe they groan and they protest. They don't want to read their Bible. They don't want to pray. They complain every Sunday about church. They beg and plead. Can our lives look a little bit more like our non-Christian friends' families? Can we have more of what they're doing? Their kids seem happier. Do not let human wisdom overpower the wisdom of God. Do not let impatience and fear and anxiety lead you to take charge of God's kingdom in your home. This parable invites you. There is nothing for you to change, no compromise for you to make, no fancy dress to put onto the gospel to make it appealing to your children. Letting your children set the program for their own discipleship is just as wise as letting them choose what they eat and when they sleep and when they brush their teeth. And it has much more dire consequences than any of those things. God has given you, mom and dad, a wonderful job to do. And he hasn't made it unknowable or strange or beyond your grasp. He has given you an opportunity to faithfully, regularly, continually apply the gospel in your home. To preach it to your kids. To read the word with them. To pray with them and pray for them and rest in that. To bring them to God's people. To bring the means of grace into their lives through the church. And to rest in that. Your kids' sinful, struggling hearts need the same thing that your own sinful, struggling heart needs. And kids, even teenagers, have you tried to make it hard for your mom and dad to disciple you? Have you tried to make it hard for them to get your butt to church? For them to read the Bible with you? To pray with you? Proverbs says that a son who hates discipline is one day going to be staring in the face of destruction. You may not love learning about the gospel any more than you love eating your vegetables. But that is exactly why you need the gospel, isn't it? That is why your parents need to remind you of it, why they need it. Why you need the scriptures, why you need to pray, why you need to come here and listen to these super exciting sermons. Because your heart is complaining and protesting about the gospel. Is complaining and protesting about Jesus taking your punishment and rising again. Your heart is asking for other things. You need that good news. You need Jesus taking your punishment for that sinful heart that you and I have. You need him rising again so that heart can be made new and changed so you can love what God loves. So even in your hardest days, kids, never ask your mom and dad for anything other than building you up in the gospel, except maybe vegetables. Ask your mom and dad to read the Bible with you. Ask them to pray with you, even when your heart doesn't want it, because your heart needs it and my heart needs it, and we don't need anything different or anything else. Now, just like we want to teach our kids what to love and what to expect in the home and in the church, we need to remember what we want and expect in our homes and our churches, moms and dads. Do our attitudes toward the church secretly look a lot like our kids' attitudes when they hate being discipled? 
Are you wishing that your church would add to what God has required or just change it or improve on it a little? Do you wish that we could adapt to a little bit more of what we are enjoying in the world around us? Or do you simply look at other churches doing different things and feel this crisis? Like, should we be doing what they're doing? That seems to be working better than what we've got going on here. Let God's word, let this parable in particular, help you to desire of your church the same ordinary, beautiful things that God uses to bring about his harvest. Beg them to preach the gospel. Nothing else. Beg them to preach the word, to share the gospel with your community. Desire that we would be praying for one another. Desire that we would be faithfully offering the sacraments that build up our faith. Encouraging hospitality and fellowship. Because being diligent in these things means we are trusting God to do miraculous work to grow his kingdom. Now you don't have to worry like your life or death depends upon whether or not Derek or Jordan or the elders are charismatic enough or powerful enough or capable enough. You can ask whether we are faithfully sowing the seeds of the gospel so that you as a church can be built up not by men, but by God. This frees us from anxiety. You don't have to worry when the cultural winds seem to shift, when other churches apply new methods and seem to be growing really quickly. We can continue to rest in the same sovereign power of God, which has overseen his people for centuries. The Corinthian church was experiencing this kind of anxiety. They formed different camps. They chose Paul or Apollos or some other leader and then started to argue that, that they, were, they were pursuing this sort of Pauline way to do church, an Apollocene way to do church, a better methodology, something more successful. They were tempted to look at worldly wisdom. What do the Jews want? What do the Greeks want? Maybe if we bring in more of that, we can be a better church. Paul responds to this by drawing on this parable of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 5. What then is Paul? What then is Apollos? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. There is nothing that we can do in and of our own power to grow the church. But it is God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters, we are one. And we will receive our wages according to our labor. We are serving God's purposes. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Paul says these ministers are nothing special. They don't have different powers and abilities that to, to, to somehow successfully force God's kingdom to grow. They are at best Faithful hired servants in God's farm. They carry out the work that God has demanded they do. They do not dare go beyond it, trusting in their own wisdom instead of God's. And they trust that God then is going to grow his harvest. The glory for that labor does not go to the minister. It goes to God, the one whose wisdom this is, the one whose salvation it is, the one who we are faithfully following. We are simple laborers following God's instructions to build his kingdom. Paul adds another warning, and you saw there he shifts 
from the metaphor of a field to a building. He says, according to the grace of God given me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. That's just analogous to the planting and watering in the last metaphor. But let each one take care how he builds upon it. For one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Not only can we rest in watering, in planting, according to God's design, but we actually have to be afraid if our church is following human wisdom and adding to that or changing that. As soon as we change our methods, we change what our methods produce. What you win people with is what you win them to. If we are not following God's design in our home, in our church, in our community, we are going to produce something other than what God is doing. And there is a day coming which will test whether or not what is built up survives. Even if we ourselves are saved, All that we labored for in our home, in our church, in our city could be burned up. This is a particular warning that Paul gives to church leaders. But it does apply to any way we would see the kingdom built up. When the time of waiting is done, what is the harvest going to expose? What harvest are we going to see? This is our third point, hoping in the harvest according to God's timing. Jesus ends this parable with a promise. The time of patience will one day end. The crops will grow. The rich harvest will come. That's God's promise. When your labor seems like it's not producing what you hope for, the harvest is still promised. When you see a loved one reject the gospel or your culture stray into wickedness, the harvest is still promised. When we feel like those who have compromised the gospel, adapted to worldly pleasures, seem like they're gaining all the ground, God's harvest is still promised. Again, we do not know his plan for the future. We do not have a promise that any one soul will be saved or perished. But we know that just like seeds and sun and soil produce a crop, so will the gospel of God's kingdom surely produce its harvest. The wait may seem long, but the day is coming. And this is a promise to you when you are discouraged about whether God's means are working in your family or your church. God's plan is more perfect than ours. Do not lose faith in that. But there's also a warning here, similar to the warning that Paul gave the Corinthians, because Jesus is referring back to Joel 3.13, which says, Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their evil is great. Here Joel uses the harvest imagery as a warning about those who are presuming they are part of God's kingdom while still being enslaved to sin and their flesh and their own desires. The day of harvest will also be a day when those who are not a part of God's kingdom will be exposed, cut down, and cast out of that kingdom into the fire like weeds to be burned. The day of harvest is also the day of judgment. So we can go back to Paul's warning here about trying to build up God's kingdom by compromising. It will surely end up building a different kingdom, one that will be exposed and not survive. 
So in your family and your church, never desire anything other than what God has given to build up his kingdom. And if you've already fallen into this trap of losing confidence in God's means, changing them, disliking what God has planned for his people and his church, then you can repent of that. The gospel is powerful enough to build up and restore God's kingdom even after we have failed to honor his means. That is the point of the gospel. At any time, you can turn and rest in God's power and diligently, faithfully participate in the growth of his kingdom. And it will be enough to bring in a rich harvest in our church, in our city. Trust the gospel. Trust the power of Jesus the Messiah, the one who's teaching these parables, even as he is on the way to the cross to bear the punishment for our faithlessness. To accomplish that wonderful, powerful act of reconciliation, which is going to mean that when that good news goes out, it is going to go out with power. It is going to bring about every single thing that God has set out for it to. The gospel will accomplish no less than God has promised it will. It will bring in a rich harvest. Brothers and sisters, doesn't that make you feel confident? Isn't that a sweet offer of rest to you as you serve God according to his means? You can get up, faithfully carry out the means of grace, and then you can go to bed. You can sleep. You can trust God to do more than you could ever ask or imagine. We will get a double benediction today, closing with this sure promise of what God will bring about for his kingdom. 1 Thessalonians 5. Now may the God of peace himself give growth to his crop. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the harvest, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that... uh, We rest not upon our own effort, our own ability, our own charisma. We thank you that the success of your kingdom does not depend upon us, but on the wonderful gospel, which has already been accomplished in Christ. Jesus has died. He has risen. The gospel is surely powerful to save all who call upon his name. And thank you that by your spirit and sovereignty and power, you promise that it will accomplish everything that you have given it to do, even through gatherings like this one, even through weak human jars of clay. Father, we praise you for displaying your glory in making wonderful fruit grow, even from our humble, diligent, ordinary work. But we thank you that that is not our power and certainly does not deserve our glory, but it is a mysterious, beautiful, wonderful growing of a harvest that we cannot take responsibility for, that we cannot even understand or account for, but we can trust you in and rest in. So may we feel that rest and diligently Uh, continue to serve you in it like faithful farmers until that harvest comes in to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.